welcome back to SIGGRAPH Spotlight. Today, we're introducing the SIGGRAPH Retrospective Program by sitting down with special guest Alvy Ray-Smith. Listen in for a look at Alvy's history with computer graphics, a deep dive into the making of his new book, A Biography of the Pixel, and to hear more about the new retrospective program at SIGGRAPH 2021. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe for future episodes or leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to help others find us. Now I'm going to turn things over to Andres Burbano, our SIGGRAPH Retrospective Chair. Take it away, Andres. Welcome back to SIGGRAPH Spotlight. My name is Andres Burbano, and I am the SIGGRAPH 2021 Retrospective Chair. For any listeners who have been with us for a while, you have also heard from me in episodes 10 and 33. For my day job, I am a media artist working in fields such as information visualization, and I'm a scholar interested in the history of media technologies. I am associate professor in the design department at Universidad de los Andes in Bogota, Colombia. And this year, I will be visiting professor at the University of Applied Sciences in Potsdam, Germany. In this episode, I'm thrilled to introduce SIGGRAPH Retrospective Program by chatting with today's special guest, Alvi Ray-Smith. During SIGGRAPH 2021, the retrospective program will cover the history of computer graphics and interactive techniques with five panels and one featured session. Today, we will discuss Alvi's history with computer graphics, the role SIGGRAPH has played in that story, his upcoming book, and more. We are so happy to have you with us, Alvi, as our special guest. Can you share, in your own words, a brief background about your career and what got you interested in computer graphics? I have been making computer pictures since 1964. First of all, I was born before computers, and I've watched the Moore's Law explosion and the whole thing unwind throughout my lifetime. And I've surfed the awesome supernova explosion of the Moore's Law phenomenon as my career, as all of our careers. So first I fell in love with computers, like many of us do, and this is when they were terribly slow beasts. And then I discovered you could make pictures on them, and the rest is history, as they say. SIGGRAPH is our lodestar. We would show up every year to show off our latest algorithms and pictures to all our colleagues, because these were the other people in the world who knew what we had done. And when we got their praise, that made it all worthwhile. You have made many contributions to computer graphics throughout your career. What contribution are the most proud of? Let's start with the artistic contributions. I think the piece I'm proudest of is called Sunstone that I made with Ed Emschwiller, a well-known artist. In 1979, we made this piece at the New York Institute of Technology on Long Island, and that piece is in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and I'm exceedingly proud of it still today, even though it was, well, that was a long time ago when machines were very slow and graphics was very crude. And then, of course, I'm... Pixar. I mean, I'm incredibly proud of Pixar. There's several books in that in that single statement, so I'll just leave it there. Technically, I'm proud of having invented the Alpha Channel and having written the first full-color paint program and so forth. But mostly, I'm just proud of having been part of the beginnings and explosion of what I now call digital light in my book, which is all pictures made of pixels which if you think about it, are all pictures in the world today, almost all of them. 
And in fact, because of the digital explosion, nearly all pictures that have ever existed are parts of digital light. That only became true about 20 years ago. That's the world we now live in. And I helped make it happen. That's amazing. Because you're touching the, the topic of the book. We know that your book, A Biography of the Pixel, is going to be launched in August. Just before SIGGRAPH. Just before SIGGRAPH, exactly. And we'll have the privilege to, to host you there speaking about the book. Can you please share a summary of the book? And maybe later on we can engage with the more specific topics. I can try. It's a, it's a, it's a big book with lots of parts. I was motivated by noticing that hardly anybody seems to know what a pixel is. Or worse, they have the wrong idea. One of the great confusions in the world today is between pixels, which you cannot see, and the little glowing spots on a screen called display elements that you can see. They are two completely different kinds. To call the little glowing spots pixels means you don't understand the basic theory behind all of the modern picture world. So the purpose of the book is to present the sampling theorem, which is the key theorem behind our world, in a non-mathematical way, tell the story of its creator. So starting back at the very beginning of what, it, what a pixel is, bring it all the way forward to the millennium, at which point our modern era began. Just 20 years ago is when it began. And I thought it was time for a book that established the history, got it right. There's a lot of things wrong out there. The histories people think they know. And to get the science behind it right, too. Oh, yeah, the story of Pixar is in there, but that's not the purpose of the book. And the story of the history of computer graphics is in there, but that's not the purpose of the book. Computer graphics is just a small part of the world of digital light, which includes all of image processing, parking meters, my Tesla dashboard, satellite image, you know. So I understand the book has three parts. The first one is foundations about three great ideas. What are those three great ideas that you were referring in the book? Well, the first is Fourier, Joseph Fourier, about the time of the, let's call it 1800 thereabouts, came up with the notion that the world is all music. Everything is a sum of waves of different frequencies and amplitudes. One of the most beautiful ideas of all times. It's fundamental to all high technology today. And I think it's one of those things that I think people in the arts and humanities should know about as much as people in the sciences and technologies. And so I present Fourier's beautiful theorem that it's all music in non-mathematical terms and tell this fabulous story of Fourier. So that's where I start. Did you know he almost got his head cut off in the French Revolution? People don't know the story of Fourier. They know about Fourier. We all know Fourier. Those of us in the sciences and technology know for the name Fourier, but we don't know the story. So that's the first idea. The second idea is the sampling theorem. The sampling theorem is based on Fourier. And the surprise to me was to find out that it was a Russian communist who brought us the pixel by proving this, the sampling theorem in the form that we use today. So I tell the astonishing story of Vladimir Kotelnikov, whom nobody's heard of in America. And the third great idea, of course, is computation. So I start with the beginnings of computation with Alan Turing, the one of the few absolute geniuses from which all things flow. And the reason I say that is because I've Many of the histories always have a, a hero, but if you look at, at the histories in details, there's hardly ever a single guy from which all things flow. So I use genealogy, family charts of all the people who work together and how the lineages of people and their ideas braid together in different ways to form 
well, ultimately, Pixar, DreamWorks, and uh, Blue Sky, using my field as a kind of a armature on which to hang the story of the whole vast field of digital light. That's part one. Exactly. So, and uh, then part two is called contributions to high technologies. Yeah. So this is where I tell the story of computers, the beginnings of digital light, and movies and animation. I need all of those in order to tell the big story. One of the big surprises of I was surprised again and again and again in my researches, which covered 10 years, by the way. I went looking for the first pixels and found them on the first computer. Who knew that the first computer had the first pixels? Baby in Manchester, England is the first computer, 1948. It had pixels, and not only that, it could animate. When I showed up to see Baby, the word Pixar was on its screen, and it was scrolling to the right. There's been graphics since the first computer. This is 1948. Then I found the first interactive game because SIGGRAPH is both, right? It's graphics and interactivity, okay? I found the first electronic game, interactive game in 1951, also in Manchester, England. The second one was in Cambridge, England, 1953. All of these dates were like 10 years earlier than I had guessed. So I figured if I don't know, and I've been in the business all my life, over 50 years, then that means probably all my colleagues don't know either. So I need to tell this story. And similarly, I said, okay, I've got to tell the story of movies. One of the things I discovered early on is like the history of computers is everybody claims they invented the computer. And I didn't know who invented the first computer. Why didn't I know? I've been around through the whole thing. Well, it all boils down to what's the definition of a computer. And once you define it carefully, electronic stored program computer, it's really simple. It's what we mean by it today. Then the dates just fall out. And you can say one, number two, number three, number four. It's easy. So I did that for movies as well. Who made the first movie machines? Not the first content, but the first devices. Well, what you have to define what that means. What is a movie machine? Well, it's not just the camera. It's the camera, it's the film, and it's the projector. That's the machine. Once you have that, then you have movies. Who did that first? And it's not who you think. It wasn't. Edison, it wasn't Mybridge, it wasn't the Lumiere brothers. Le Prince? Wasn't Le Prince. Le Prince is a, is a special case. I have to do a special case for him because he disappeared, right? And nobody ever knew what happened. <laughs> he gets honorable mention, but we really don't know. The person whom um, I think gets, should get more credit than he has is named William Kennedy Laurie Dixon. And you haven't heard of him, right? And yet, he's the guy who brought us the 35-millimeter film format with four perks per frame. He made the first movies at, with Edison. He was uh, Edison's, uh, he became Edison's arch rival, on and on and on. He's the guy, I think, to the extent that there is one guy, and there really isn't. And there's a similar story in France. There's a guy named Demigny who uh, was fundamental to inventions of the movies in, in France, not the Lumiere brothers. But to tell the story, I had to draw family trees, genealogies of how all these guys worked together and fought and stole from each other, stabbed each other in the back. It's a great, they're great stories, and it's a much more complex story than Thomas Edison did at all. No, he didn't. <laughs> and then I did a similar thing for animation. You know, where did animations come from? Who were the first animators and so forth? That's just establish how I tell the history of technology, for one thing, how I start shooting down the myths that have just accumulated for, because nobody has been saying otherwise. People with vested interests like uh, certain countries and certain universities and certain individuals claim credit for these things when it's just not so. 
that's a theme of the book, by the way, the role of the tyrant. Yeah, that's true. And let's go to the third part, the rise and shine of digital light. Okay, so once we get the 1948, the first pixels, then we can start, which happened, well, I said 1948. We can now follow the history of our field. I'm using the the pixel, the history of the pixel as the history of our field. Not Vector graphics was just sort of a, a, a temporary de- detour that confused us for a while, but it wasn't until that went away and got replaced by pixels. Pixels got reintroduced. They were there in the beginning, and then there was this calligraphic detour, I call it. And then we came back to pixels with silicon graphics machines and things like that, and it's been all pixels ever since. That's the history I can track. So I already told you where I, that I found the first pixels. Then I went looking for the first color pixels. You know where they are? Do you know who had them? I don't think so. Most people don't. I thought we well, had them. At, you know, Spark? That's what I thought. I thought, you know, I was at Xerox Spark working on Super Paint in the early 70s. I thought we had the first color pixels. Dick Shop, who was my pal and had built the Super Paint program, said, Alfie, I don't think so. I, but he didn't know. He said, I think there, there, there must have been somebody else out there. Well, I found them. I found the first color pixels. And that's one of my stories in the book. They came from the Apollo Moon Project in 1967. And I show pictures from the first display of the, you know, there they are. First color graphics, first rendered 3D models, 1967. Again, five or six years earlier than I would have guessed. Like that. You just, once you get get the pieces right, then they all start braiding together in nice, clear ways. And I end... You know, I, like I said, I've been using, I use the digital movies because that's my, what I know best as an armature from which to hang the history of the very large field. It's not a history of the movies. They're just in there for convenience. And I try to tell a story of Pixar, DreamWorks, and Blue Sky as different braidings of the same historical currents. And we all came out at the millennium. So the millennium, plus or minus a few years, was the moment when all analog media types coalesce in what I call the great digital convergence into the modern media world. And the era of digital light began. And that's where we are today. We're just 20 years into it. Yeah, that's the conclusion of the book, right? It's a finale with that title. Can you please uh, explain a little well, bit more of what's your Well, I, you know, I, I, you can't just drop it in 2000. There's been 20 years of Moore's Law since then. By the way, Moore's Law, I I sing the praises of Moore's Law on every page. Moore's Law is, the way I term it, is it's an order of magnitude. Everything good about computers gets better by an order of magnitude every five years. Factor of 10 every five years. You can say it, but it's hard to understand what that means that I just said. What it means was 1965 Moore's Law factor was one. That's when I made my first graphic picture. Today, it's sitting at 100 billion. Everything good about computers today, right now, today, you have, what we're doing right here is 100 billion times better than it was in 1965. That number is so large, you can't, you don't understand it. An order of magnitude is about all we can understand. Factor of 10. This is 11 factors of 10. By 2025, we're going to hit 1 trillion. And I can say that number, but I can tell you, we humans don't know what that means until we get there. So that's the future. You can sort of guess at it, you know. Uh, maybe we'll have instantaneous movies on a click. But th- I, I have a feeling that the profound things that it means, I can't tell you because 
I don't know how. Excellent. Thank you. So this is a fantastic introduction to the book, A Biography of the Pixel. And you've been talking about the future. So going back to you, as an author and considering your impressive career, what's next for you professionally and personally? Oh, gee, just writing this book has taken everything I've got. In order to fit this book inside a reasonably sized book, I had to delete a chapter. It was the history of television. And I had similarly torn apart the history of television like I had the history of computers, movies, animation, computer graphics, and so forth. So I was really sad to do that, but I thought if I, if I had to cut one chapter, that one I could cut and do something about it later. Just to motivate you, was it Farnsworth or Zwerikin who invented television? Hmm. Probably before, maybe in the UK? No, Baird. So Baird is in there, but I show that he doesn't count. He had a mechanical system that couldn't possibly work. Yeah, it was electromechanical, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was. It was. So he's in there because he's such a character. He's such a character, but you can't leave him out. But it turns out, really, the story of television is so complex you can't boil it down to one guy. Farnsworth technically had the first complete television demonstration, but nobody uses the Farnsworth system. Nobody uses the the, the original Zvorkin system either. The iconoscope. Yeah, they, they were. It took hundreds of engineers working over decades, patenting and patenting and patenting before they finally got television so you could watch it. That early television was unwatchable. It's hard to count it. The tyrant there was David Sarnoff, of course. Joseph Fourier had Napoleon as his tyrant. Yeah. It was part of the army, right? Of Napoleonic army, isn't it? No, it was Napoleon himself. Napoleon and Joseph Fourier were born almost exactly at the same time and lived almost exactly. They went to military schools at almost exactly the same place. And so after the revolution, Fourier survived getting his head cut off because Robespierre got his head cut off first, saving our guy Fourier. The next thing that happened was this fellow Napoleon takes Fourier to Egypt with him. Yeah, wow. And the group there discovers the Rosetta Stone. All right. But also Fourier saw that Napoleon had made military mistakes in Egypt. He had been defeated, basically, in Egypt. Napoleon didn't want anybody in France saying that. So his trick was he exiled Fourier to Grenoble, France, wouldn't let him in the capital of Paris. And in fact, Fourier could not come back to the capital in Paris until Napoleon had been sent to St. Helena for his final exile. Wow. Those are the kind of stories you tell. Like this Napoleon was Fourier's direct tyrant. But in a way, since he had exiled Fourier, Fourier then was free to work on his theories without being hampered in any way. He had a good job. He was governor of the province. Okay. This is a fantastic place to, to conclude. And, uh, you know, this year, SIGGRAPH 2021 will be virtual again. Are you interested in any part of the program? Maybe you know already something about the retrospective program? I'm game to be part of it. I, I learned more just listening to your introduction than I knew. We were been working a lot putting together this uh, program, and I hope to see you there also in the audience in the other panels. It's been amazing meeting you and talking to you for a while. I'm positive this will be of great interest of our community, and uh, the people of SIGGRAPH Spotlight will enjoy. Thank you very much for your time, and see you soon in SIGGRAPH. Uh, My pleasure talking with you. 
Wow, what a great conversation. For more information on Alvy Ray Smith, ACM SIGGRAPH, or the upcoming SIGGRAPH 2021 virtual conference, check out the links in our show notes. Till next time.